The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles, it's going to be found on page 840. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the, the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The word of the Lord. Well, as we turn our attention to this episode here where Jesus is going to prove that he has the power to calm the chaos of hell, let's pray and let's ask for the Holy Spirit to empower the preaching of his word and then we'll turn our attention to our text. Holy Spirit, we believe in your power, your ability to demonstrate the power of God, to bring hearts that are far from you, that are lost and are being ravaged by the chaotic powers of hell. God, today you have the power to ransom and to redeem that soul. And for those of us who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but maybe still struggling with sin, or still trying to find out and discover what it looks like to have victory over sin, God, you are the same Christ that we need because you are the one who has the power over the chaotic powers of hell. And so, God, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would engage our attention, that you would make our lazy ears become awake, and that you would change us and cause us to experience your presence this morning as a result of hearing your words preached. 
We pray these things in the powerful name of King Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've ever heard of a phrase uh, that goes like this, out of the frying pan into the fire. And if there was ever a phrase that would just appropriately describe the transition that we see from Mark chapter 4 into Mark chapter 5, it would be this phrase. This phrase, out of the frying pan into the fire, it perfectly captures the experience of the disciples as they are traveling from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. Mark tells us here at the very beginning, Mark chapter 5, verse 1, that no sooner than the boat hits the shoreline on the opposite side of the sea, Mark tells us that the disciples move from the chaos of nature seen in the storm right into the chaos of hell, which is seen in the life of one man. In essence, to go from that episode of Jesus calming the storm at the end of Mark 4 to transition into this episode where Jesus interacts with the demon-possessed man, there's just very little, very little difference because what it is, it's Christ calming the storm, proving He has the power to calm the storm, and He also shows now that He has the power to calm the chaos of hell. Just as the wind and the waves were threatening to destroy Jesus and his disciples, so the demons from hell were threatening to destroy this man whose body they were habiting, this man that we're going to, to look at here in a couple of minutes. And the point of Mark stacking these two episodes together, proving that Jesus has the power to calm the chaos of nature and proving that Jesus has the power to calm the the chaos of hell in this man. Mark specifically stacks these two episodes next to each other to show that this king, he is the one who is king of power. And so again, as we look at this, we say what we said last week, right? That the point of these verses isn't man-centered. What we're not meant to do is look at verses 1 through 20, and come away with some point like, you know, just as Jesus delivered the demon-possessed man, so Jesus can deliver you. Like we said last week, that is a right implication of this text, but that's not the main point of this text. The main point of this text is to magnify the power of King Jesus and His ability to calm the chaos of hell. That's the point of this verse, of these verses. It's to stir your heart to praise the Lord of glory who cares for those who've been demonized by Satan's dark kingdom and dehumanized by the tyranny of sin, which, as we'll come to see, is more all-encompassing than we may care to admit this idea of men and women being demonized and dehumanized by Satan's dark kingdom. And so as Mark begins, he turns our attention to verse 1, and as he does so, he shows us the chaos of hell in one man. We see that in the first five verses. What we see, in essence, is a man who needs to be delivered. And so starting in verse 1, Mark writes that they, Jesus and the disciples, in the boat, they make their way to the other side of the sea. They land in the country of the Gerasenes. 
And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, there's that word immediately. Remember, Mark is using this word just to move the story along. Now immediately, I mean, it's like Jesus is just swinging himself over the side of the boat. And as he's wading through the last couple feet of water, his feet hit the shore. And immediately what happens is this man comes screaming at him out of the tombs. Mark says, a man who has an unclean spirit. And so what we immediately learn is that this is a man who is enslaved and he is a man who is in need of deliverance. Tortured by the chaos of hell, this man was dominated by a demon, an unclean spirit. Enslaved by an evil enemy that was bent against him, this man's heart, this man's soul, this man's mind was occupied enemy territory. His whole existence was a bleak picture of spiritual oppression. He was alone, confined to live in the tombs, Mark says. He was uncontrollable. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Though he had often been bound with shackles and chains, he would wrench those chains apart and he would break those shackles into pieces. In short, Mark tells us that no one had the strength to subdue the garrison man. His entire existence was just one of torment. Howling screams and lacerated skin defined him as he roamed the tombs and he roamed the mountains crying out and cutting himself with stones. Deranged and utterly off the chart in behavior, his condition seemed totally incurable. Totally incurable. We want nothing to do with this man, so they banish him to the tombs and the mountains. There is no hope for him. We've tried to help him. He has refused our help. He rages against our help. He is incurable. He is hopeless. You need to go live in the tombs. And so they write him off. And in writing him off, all the townspeople basically had destined him to belong and to be banished to a lonely world that was marked by hopelessness, a world that was marked by despair. And what we need to do in looking at this demon-possessed man in the air in these first five verses is that we need to pause at least long enough to recognize this truth that we see here in these verses. And it's the truth that the driving purpose of Satan, the driving purpose of his dark kingdom is to enslave and to destroy your soul. That's what, G- that's what Satan and his car- dark kingdom is all about. The driving purpose of Satan and his dark kingdom is to enslave and destroy your soul. This is what we see Satan and his demons doing to this man here in these verses. In John chapter 8, the apostle John tells us the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And if you go to 1 Peter chapter 5, the apostle Peter adds to this idea of the devil being a murderer from the beginning. Peter says this same devil, he is the adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Enslaving is his thing. Destroying the image of God in man is what the enemy of our soul is all about. And so when you look into the mirror of these five verses, what we are meant to see that enslaving destruction is the singular goal of the enemy of your soul. The driving purpose of Satan in his dark kingdom is to enslave you and to destroy you. 
And so as we look at these five verses, this is just the reality that we see there in the demon-possessed man. He is a man enslaved, and he is a man being destroyed by the spiritual forces of evil that are raging in him. But when we read how the chaotic powers of hell have demonized this man, and how they have dehumanized this man. I mean, he's running around out in the wild. There's, there's something almost very, very animalistic that's going on here. You look at this picture, and he is just a shell of a man. He's dehumanized. You don't look at him and see healthy, thriving, vibrant life the way God has created it to be. What you see is a man utterly dehumanized by Satan and his dark kingdom. But when we look at this, what we're not meant to do is just go, well, man, that's, an, that's a sort of a bummer for this guy, and I, I'm just, I guess I'm sort of glad that happened so long ago, but well, I don't know, what, what does this have to do with me? What we're not meant to do is just go, well, like, bummer for him, good for me. No, what we're supposed to do is when we look at how the chaotic powers of hell have demonized and dehumanized this man, what we're meant to do is we're, we're meant to see that this man is a graphic illustration of what humanity looks like apart from God. Apart from God, humanity is demonized by Satan and his dark kingdom. Dehumanized by the tyranny of sin. In other words, when we look at the Gerasene man who is possessed by a demon, in him we find a picture of what is true of all men by nature. Now, what I'm not saying is that somehow all men are demon-possessed, but what I am saying is that by nature, to be outside of Christ, this truth, all men are ruled by dark forces of evil, is true of all souls, past, present, and future. The Apostle Paul drives at this very idea when he says in Ephesians chapter 2, listen, describing our condition outside of Christ. So here's Paul in his letter to the Ephesian church. He's writing to believers. He says, listen, I know that you're in Christ, but let me paint a picture of what it was like for you outside of Christ before you were ransomed and redeemed by the good news of God's grace. It's the classic first two verses of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, listen, this is the descriptors of the reality of your soul apart from God outside of Christ. You were dead. Spiritually dead. Physically alive, spiritually dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You trespassed against God. You transgressed His law. You loved sin more than you loved the Savior. And as a result, you were a walking dead man. You followed the course of this world. You weren't following God's word and God's ways. You were following the prince of the power of the air. This is Paul's way of describing the adversary the devil, the one who is hell-bent in destroying, enslaving you. That's just a turn of phrase that, that Paul used. He's the prince of the power of the air. And this is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So here's Paul saying, do you want to know what it was like for you outside of Christ? You were dead. You loved to transgress God, go against God. You loved sin more than you loved the Savior. You were a follower. You followed the course of this world. You were not following God's word and God's ways. But you, what you were doing was you weren't bowing your knee to the king of glory. But you were, in a sense, bowing your knee to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
See, to be outside of Christ is to be enslaved to evil just like the demoniac was slave to evil. To be outside of Christ is to be bent towards self-destruction just like the demoniac was bent towards self-destruction. And like the demon-possessed man, we are people who are demonized and dehumanized by sin, which means we are just as much in need of deliverance as this man that we see in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. This is what we're meant to see when we look into the mirror of these verses. You're meant to see yourself among the tombs. You're meant to see that your situation outside of Christ, apart from God, was hopeless and helpless. You're meant to look at this man who was running around out of his mind, enslaved, being destroyed by the dark powers, the cosmic powers that are in the heavens, and go, this man needs a deliverer just like I need a deliverer. I need someone who has the power to calm the chaos of hell. And praise be to God, Mark says, listen, we do have that deliverer. His name is Jesus. King Jesus has the power to calm the chaos of hell. So we see in verses 6 through 13, as Mark continues with the story, it doesn't just stop at verses 1 through 5. He doesn't just paint this bleak picture of this man who's enslaved and demonized and dehumanized and is being destroyed by the tyranny of sin. And it's like, man, I sure hope this guy figures something out. He doesn't do that. He then turns our attention to the deliverer, the one who will ransom this enslaved man and pull him out of the darkness into the light. And in doing so, Mark simply tells us that King Jesus has the power to calm the chaos of hell. And so in verse 6, we witness the story continue. Mark tells us that in this strange interaction, as the man interacts with Jesus, we see this this odd tension, this weird interplay between Jesus and the demon-possessed man at One and the same time, this man is drawn to Jesus, but there seems to be this tension of he's simultaneously repulsed by Jesus, right? Seeing Jesus from afar, he, the demon-possessed man, runs and falls down before him. There's almost this sense of, man, if my situation is going to get better, there's this little light bulb moment of clarity, and what he does is he beelines it to the one. He goes, man, I think this guy might be able to deliver me, but like in the same breath, as he's running and as he's bowing down, he starts screaming out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Almost in a tone of defiance. Repulsed and yet drawn is the tension that is existing in the soul of this man. And we see that the demons react this way. That the man is screaming these things because Jesus down there in verse 8 is commanding the unclean spirit in this man to come out of the man. And in response to this command, notice that the demons actually give us an answer to the disciples' question from the end of Mark 4 last week. Do you remember what was going on at the end of Mark 4? Jesus is in the boat. Wind and the waves are blowing, sinking the ship. They wake Jesus up. Jesus, don't you care? Jesus is like, oh, brothers, you need to know I care. Looks at the wind and the waves, says, hey, be quiet. They immediately stop. And what's the reaction of the disciples? They freak out. We said they were terrified with mega terror at the power of this one who can talk to wind and water and make it cease. 
And then what's the question on their lips? Who then is this? Who then is this? And they're standing there going like, we don't quite have an answer for this question. Who then is this? But notice that where the disciples were yet able to discern the answer to the question, who then is this? On the lips of the demons, we have the answer right here. He is Jesus. He is son of the most high God. So Jesus is looking at this man and he asks the man, what is your name? To which he replies, my name is Legion for we are many. Now, if you ever just want to freak someone out, the next time that you're at church and someone has asked you, what's your name? Just give them an answer in the plural. Like, right, hanging out back there, Miss Jan has got some maybe pumpkin bread going and you're just munching on some pumpkin bread and someone comes up and is like, man, what's your name, man? You're like, my name is Multitude and we love this pumpkin bread. <laughs> man, people are going to be like, what? <laughs> like, we, who are you talking to, man? Like, I'm looking at you, man. It's just a weird interaction, isn't it, where it's just something freaky is going on here. It's like Jesus is looking at this guy. What is your name? And he says, my name is Legion. We are many. And it's like, man, there's just something deeper going on underneath the surface here than just this guy being possessed by a singular, singular demon. It's a weird response, but it's this kind of response that Jesus receives from the garrison man revealing the full impact that the demon actually had on this guy. So like, right, whenever you think about this, his name Legion, that's a very odd name, but what it does is it's giving it a little insight into just how enslaved, how much destruction was playing itself out in the heart, in the mind, in the soul of this man. In Roman military strategy, in the way that they ordered troops, there could be a legion of troops, and a legion of troops could be up to a contingency of 6,000 soldiers. And so when this man says to Jesus, my name is Legion, we see that this man is not possessed by just one demon, but apparently he is possessed by thousands of demons who are working out as one singular evil force in the life of this man. In a way, his name, when he says to Jesus, my name is Legion, he is expressing the fact that his life was being used as an outpost of demonic activity in this world. I think it's very interesting that sort of militaristic language that the man uses. Satan has a kingdom, and it's a dark kingdom seeking to undo the good news kingdom of King Jesus. And the way the enemy of our souls, Satan, goes about doing this is apparently he's willing to inhabit and make the heart, soul, and mind of men the outpost dotted throughout this world so that he can have access to these things. But for all the torture that the demons had been able to exercise against this man in the presence of Jesus, notice that the tables turn whenever Jesus shows up. Recognizing Jesus as the ultimate source of sovereign power, the demons turn to begging. Do you see that there? Recognizing Jesus as the ultimate source of sovereign power, the demons begin to beg. They beg over there in verse 7, I beg you by God, do not torment me. You jump down to verse 10, now they're begging to not be sent out of the country, and he, the man, it's this weird interchange, because you read verses 6 through 10, like you're never quite sure who's actually talking, 
Sometimes it's like, is it Legion who's talking? Is it the man? I'm not quite sure. But there in, in verse 10, something singular, he, the man, is speaking and he's begging, Jesus, don't, don't send these demons out of the country. Then you roll over into verse 12 and what we find is that they then, in a last-ditch effort, recognizing that something is going to happen, they see a great herd of pigs feeding on the hillside and then they turn to begging for a third time. Verse 12, they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter into them. And when we step back and sort of examine this, this trio of begging, this pleading that the demons are, are laying out before the king of glory, it reveals at least this one thing, that King Jesus reigns over the cosmic powers of darkness. The demons don't have power over King Jesus. Satan's dark kingdom doesn't have power over the good news kingdom of King Jesus. Notice that they don't have the ability to come to Jesus and say, we need you to get out of here and you're going to leave now because we have more power than you. They come to him and they're like, oh no, man, like this isn't going to go good. The Lord of glory is here. He's standing right here in front of us. We need to get out of here. But notice that they don't even have permission to leave. They need the permission of the king of glory to even be able to leave his presence. This is a sign that King Jesus reigns over the cosmic powers of darkness. He reigns over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens and these demons know it they know it they know that the only way they're going to get out of this situation is if king jesus grants them the permission exercises his power over them giving them permission to leave and so mark says jesus gave them permission power exercised and then what happens is that the unclean spirits come out of the man, and then they entered into that great herd of pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushes down a steep bank into the sea and then drowns in the sea. Sort of awkward, right? Like, what's that about? Like, what's the, what's the Bay of Pigs scenario? What's, what's the deal with that? Like, why put it in there? Because Matthew... Luke and Mark all record this, and all of them have, like, why this demon-possessed man, and why do all of them highlight this fact of the demons fleeing the man into the herd of pigs, bringing death and destruction to the pigs? I mean, admittedly, this, this, the whole scenario is a bit awkward. I mean, it stirs up questions in our mind. I mean, like, why these pigs? Like, why didn't they just go somewhere else or evaporate in the thin air? I mean, like, why did it have to be 2,000 pigs? Why couldn't it have been one pig sort of like one man? Like, what, what, why did it have to be all this dreadful destruction? Like, why did that, their, their property of the herdsmen have to be destroyed? I mean, and then, like, why do we, we read this and we ask, like, why does it seem like Jesus just has zero compassion at all? Like, oh, no, man, some people's livelihood just got evaporated, like, in an instant as 2,000 pigs just drifted off into the sea and died. Like, he just seems so compassionless in all of it. You should go and ask people at work. Maybe this will be a good segue into talking about the gospel. A lot of people will actually deny Jesus Christ because of this scenario. There's a famous philosopher named Bertrand Russell who wrote an essay, Why I'm Not a Christian, and he specifically references the pig incident as one of the reasons why he doesn't believe in Christ. People read this and they're like, man, Jesus is a big jerk. Compassionless. Obviously not caring. And so the temptation for many of us is to get hung up on 
on the pigs, all the while missing the larger point that Mark wants you to see. See, in giving the demons permission to enter the herd of pigs, Jesus was not displaying a lack of compassion. He was exercising proper compassion. He was willing to sacrifice 2,000 pigs to deliver one demon-possessed man. That's compassion. Jesus, who had taught the disciples that they were of more value than many sparrows, he was now teaching the disciples that the deliverance of one man is worth 2,000 pigs. See, ultimately, Jesus was upholding the truth that there is no sacrifice too great to deliver those who are enslaved by the chaotic powers of hell, a truth which he would eventually come to uphold in the ultimate sacrifice of his body on the cross. And so then in the end, as Mark continues the story, he rounds the corner and it really just sort of comes to a head where where Mark brings us and sort of like poses this question on us. After seeing a picture of the man delivered as the man enslaved, then seeing a picture of the man delivered, Mark transitions to that place of response. And really the question in the end just becomes this, well, how am I supposed to respond to this king of power? How should I respond to this king of power? Because really when you turn to verses 14 through 20, that's what those verses are about. It's people responding to the power of King Jesus to calm the chaos of hell. Some people are going to see it and be like, don't want it. Some people are going to see it and go like, I need you, Jesus. Like that's the dividing line between when we witness the power of the king to be able to calm the chaos of our soul. So Mark tells us upon witnessing the whole episode, verse 14, the herdsmen, they were watching this. Man, what would it have been like to be a herdsman that day, right? So you're just over there minding your own business. Maybe you're just like, I don't know, pouring out some food and some slop, and all of a sudden a boat comes drifting up on the seashore. You see a guy get out with 12 dudes, and then all of a sudden there comes old Legion. You're like, Legion, man, like there he goes again, screaming and howling. What's he going to do this time? assuming that he's going to just do what he does every time, like freak people out, cause people to run. Like this is the why tourism trade in the garrisons is so low because this dude's in the tomb screaming and yelling and cutting and terrorizing. But here comes old Legion screaming down on the seashore, and Jesus apparently in a couple of minutes has this interchange with this guy where he looks at him and says, Demon, I want you to come out of him. He comes out of him, and then apparently old Legion's just sitting there all of a sudden now clothed because he was running around naked. He's sitting there. He's not running around the tombs, and he's in his right mind. He's not crying out and cutting himself. And then the herdsmen are like, what in the, the pigs are floating, they're dead, what's going on here? They're like, we need to go tell somebody. And so they go hit the cities and they hit the countryside and they're telling people. And people came to see what it was that had happened. I mean, what kind of story is this? They make their way down to the seaside and they come to Jesus and they see the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed. And in his right mind, and notice that they react the exact same way the disciples react in the presence of the power of the king. Do you see that? What do the disciples do when King Jesus exercised his power? Freak out. What do the townspeople do in the presence of the power of the king when he exercises his power to calm the chaos of hell? Freak out. 
See, when you understand that King Jesus has the power to calm the chaos of hell, it will cause you to respond one of two ways. Either you will beg Jesus to go, or you will beg to go with Jesus. That is what we see here in these verses. When the herdsmen described to the people what they had had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, Mark tells us that these people began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. I read this story, and that line always blows my mind. It's a staggering response. You think they'd be going like, man, he finally did it, man, legion, he's back. Like he's been delivered. Tourism's going to boom again. We don't have to tell our kids to take the long way around to go to school. They can actually take the, the straight line. They don't have to avoid the guy screaming and cutting himself. Jesus, like they're going to throw up a plaque and have a Jesus Day parade. He's come. He's delivered him. He's no longer enslaved. But that's the exact opposite of what happens. They look at Jesus and go, we want you to leave. Thank you very much. Right in front of them sat the man they had all known. It had been years since they had seen him look the way he did that day. They had long grown accustomed to hearing his shrieks as he ran through the tombs. Some of them could have pointed to their scars they received when they tried to bind him with shackles and chains. They may have even taught their children to avoid the man who cuts himself with stones. And now there in living color sat the evidence of Jesus doing what only Jesus can do by his power. He had made the demon-possessed man normal once again, but instead of receiving legion warmly and celebrating the power of Jesus to calm the chaos of hell, they greet legion with stony science. They look at Jesus and so and go, please leave now. We don't want your power and your presence in our life. Depart from us. And when you read that kind of reaction, they're begging Jesus to depart from the region. It begs the question of us, what possible explanation can there be for this kind of response to the power of God? Like, why would they do something like that? This is the power of God incarnate right in front of them. And then instead of joy and celebration, it's leave, we don't want your power. What would prompt somebody to respond in this way to the power of God? And I think the answer boils down to this. The people saw the evidence of Jesus' power and it terrified them because it showed that Jesus has the power to deliver men and women from their abnormalities, from those little sins that we love to cherish more than Jesus. See, the thing is, whenever Legion was around, the townspeople could look normal. As long as old Legion was in, in the region, they could go like, man, like, I messed up, but man, I ain't bad as that guy. They could constantly compare and somehow self-justify that I, yeah, I may be not as good as I probably should be, but this guy over here, I mean, he's off of the charts, and as long as he's around, then I can look normal. Whenever old Legion was on the scene, no matter what, compared to him, the townspeople would always look sane. They would always look normal. But now that Legion was clothed in his right mind, sitting there next to Jesus, what became exposed in the absence of his enslavement is that they are now just as enslaved as this man was. Do you see what's going on? 
They were hiding behind legion. They were sinning against God is my argument. And they were like, that's ah, no big deal. I mean, look at how crazy this guy is. But now that this man has had a radical encounter with Jesus and is now sitting there, the cloak that they were trying to hide behind has evaporated. And now what's left? It's just me and Jesus. And thank you very much. I don't know if I want your power in my life, Jesus, to do what you did to this man because I love these things that are not of you more than I love you. And if you're around, what happened to Legion might happen to me, and I don't want what happened to Legion to happen to me, so I am asking you, leave right now, because I don't want the power of your presence to deliver me. Thank you very much. Beg you to depart right now. And the thing is, in a way, that we are prone to do the exact same thing. See, we love to compare ourselves to someone or we love to compare ourselves to anyone who we think is doing worse than us in order to justify the way that we do the same things as them. See, porn in your life? Well, of course I've got a little porn in my life, but like, hey, at least it's not as much as that guy over there, right? Lust? Oh, man, it's not as near as much as my co-worker. You should hear the kind of jokes that he tells. Pride? Hey, now, man, it's nowhere as, as near as bad as my boss. Anger, jealousy, envy, drunkenness. Come, come on, man. Who doesn't do these things a little bit here and there? But I know this. I'm nowhere near as bad as, insert the blank. What we'd love to do is surround ourselves with the legions in our life so that we can somehow self-justify that we don't need the power of the presence of God. The people who really need the power of the presence of King Jesus to heal the chaos of hell are those other people. But then what happens is that other person at work, someone shares the gospel with them. <laughs> and that guy gets radically saved. And he pitches his porn and his anger goes down and his pride comes in check because the power of the living God is making him normal again. He is now, sort of spiritually speaking, clothed and in his right mind. And he comes to work and what you're doing is you're staring face to face at the power of Jesus Christ to work out in the life, in the heart, in the soul of a man. And what you do is you look at that and go, man, I don't want that because I love my porn, I love my lust, I love my anger, I love my jealousy more than I love Jesus. And so you look at your Savior and you say, get out of here. Depart. I would rather remain blissfully enslaved to my sin than have the power of the King in my life. And so we see that's one way to respond to the King. It's to beg Jesus to go, but then further on, the man who had been possessed with demons, we find just a very different response Verse 18, not very surprisingly, the man begs to go with Jesus. Right, man, he knows what's happened to him. So Jesus is getting into the boat. He's listening to the people. They tell him to leave. He's like, all right, peace, I'm out of here. Hopping into the boat. But then the demon, formerly demon-possessed man, the garrison man comes along and says, man, I want, I want to go with you. He begged Jesus that I might, I might go with him. So it's not surprising that he begs to go with Jesus, but he does receive a surprising response of request denied. Jesus did not permit the man to go with him, but instead gave him an evangelistic assignment. 
So Jesus says, you can't go with me, but I do want you to go in a way. I'm sending you to your friends. I want you to tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus looks at the man and says, listen, go to your family, go to your friends, share with them. Tell them of my mercy, he says. Be my witness, he says. Give your testimony, he says. You are lost, but now you're found. You once belonged to Satan, but now you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And in the end, no matter how much those garrisons may have wanted Jesus to leave, we see that Jesus still wanted them, and he was not going to leave them without a witness. So yet again, we see the compassion of our Savior. He commissions the former demoniac man with a testimony of the power of Christ to remain in the area and to go tell people how much the Lord had done for him and what he may also do for you. So as we close out this morning, I just wonder these three questions. Are you here this morning and enslaved to sin? Are you here this morning... Have you been delivered by the power of Jesus? Here this morning, are you living as one who's been sent by the king? See, whether your confession is, you know, like, you know man, like, I'm not quite living in obedience to my king and his call to go as one who's been sent. Or whether your confession is, you're like, you know what, like, I- I'm enslaved to sin. I need to be delivered. What you need to know is that your situation, it's just not beyond the power of Jesus. It's not. So no matter where you're at this morning, nothing can outdo the power of Christ to calm the chaos of hell in your soul. And so the invitation for you this morning is to confess. It's to confess. Are you weak this morning and in need of a Savior? Confess. Are you tired and in need of rest? Confess. Are you prone to anger and in need of patience? Confess. Is your soul prone to be anxious because of the circumstances of life that crowd in on you and you're in need of peace? Confess. In all these things, nothing is beyond the power of Jesus. The aim here is to do what Paul called us to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, to boast in our weakness, to boast in our need for rest, to boast in our need for patience, to boast in our need for peace, because when we boast in our weakness, that is how the power of Christ will come to rest on us. And the call for you this morning is to enter into that promise of confession. I need this king so that the power of this king would come and rest on me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come and do a mighty, mighty work this morning as a result of hearing your words preached from Mark chapter 5. We are desperately in need of you. We need you, Holy Spirit, to take the words spoken this morning and to turn our hearts over and to dissect the motivations and the attitudes of our hearts so that we might respond in a way that brings you glory, that gives you honor, and that gives you praise. God, we are so weak and we are so much in need of a Savior. And so I'm asking that you, Lord Jesus, would come. Help us, Father, to boast in our need of you so that the very power of Christ himself would come and rest 
on us. Lord Jesus, come and calm the chaos of hell that rages around us. And for some of us who don't know Jesus as Savior, we need your power to calm the very chaos of sin in our souls. May today be the day where we confess we need you, King Jesus, to exercise this power in our lives. And oh, that we would be a people who enter into that place. It's in the powerful name of King Jesus I pray.